but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And we are finally coming to the end of this uh, ghastly year. It feels like we are just taxiing on the tarmac endlessly Mm -hmm. at the end of this season as far as we're concerned regarding podcasting the season. It feels like we can't get in to the terminal fast enough. But we still got one more episode after this one. We can't get it finished fast enough, but we still managed to stall at every turn. Well, I mean, it's been, by the time this comes out, it'll have been around eight days since the last episode. That's, I mean, entirely reasonable mm. to recap an entire season. Yeah. Granted, what, half of what a normal season would have been, if that. Now, we've been talking about this year as terrible as a, as a cliche, because there's really no guarantee that next year will be better. Sorry to be a, a pessimist. But uh, our worries and troubles are not going to end uh, when the clock strikes 2021. Or even when, you know, this COVID stuff is behind us specifically as it pertains to tennis. If the tour gets back to some semblance of normalcy, we can still expect the regular bullshit that keeps snowballing, it seems, from year to year. Especially on the men's side. Mm. So, like... But, uh, you know, one byproduct of this year is that it... uh, in some ways allowed us to look past some of that normal bullshit that we're used to and focus on things that are a bit more important. Are you saying some things are just manufactured drama? No. No, I'm saying that sometimes uh, the smaller things need to be uh, put into perspective in in a year like this. And what are some of those things from this year that when you look back at them now, you're tempted to think, well... Who cares? Mm. Well, I remember earlier in the year, the WTA was rolling out their coaching from the stands policy. I think they were going to start that in February. They were also going to uh, do some beta testing on electronic line calling in Charleston. And so those are the things that typically get tennis watchers riled up a bit. And an actual proper usage of the word beta there. R- right. And now it's like, um, who cares? Why did we ever care? They implemented coaching, and that was no big deal, especially in light of all the other unusual things that happened when tennis restarted. Electronic line line calling happened. It happened. But that's going to be a bigger thing going forward, I think. The electronic line calling, mm-hmm. that's not something that we're going to be able to escape. Right. And it doesn't mean that it's not important, but the typical controversies that we were expecting to happen this year we're, we're just eclipsed by, by much larger problems. So much of what we went back and looked at for this episode surprised me that it happened in 2020. Maria Sharapova retired in 2020. That feels like a couple of years ago, at least. Yeah, a lot was squeezed into January and February of this year that I totally forgot about. And it's not totally dissimilar from any year. January, February is busy to begin with on a, in a mm. normal year but when you have so many <laughs> distinct sections to this season a lot of it not featuring a whole lot of anything 
looking back at it now feels pressure packed. Right. And also, you know, we feel like different people, perhaps pre-COVID and post or mid-COVID. Like so much has happened to each of us as a person that that feels like a totally different time. And so it's been well worn this year that time feels non-linear, let's say. That time isn't progressing the way we're used to it because there have been so many major disruptions in our lives. But like you said, can you believe that Wozniacki was still an active tennis player in January? More so than Sharapova, honestly. Oh, see, that seems way farther away to me. The Australian wildfires, the the air quality index. The wildfire uh, stuff, I was for sure certain that was 2019. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't, you know, it's happened in years prior, but they were particularly bad in 2019. The Australian Open devised yet another... Uh, sort of quasi-scientific air quality index, devised it a little bit too late. And so those felt like, you know, things that happen every year. With everything that's happened in 2020, especially in terms of how tennis authorities have dealt with unforeseen situations that have affected tennis, you wanted to make a point here about how it feels like a through line, a pattern of behavior from these tennis officials that they reinforce a tennis hierarchy amongst the players. Mm. So in January, Tennis Australia had, you know, they had to be agile. They had to move quickly with how to handle the terrible, dangerous air quality uh, at the beginning of the Australian Open. And what I think is a theme here throughout the year is that they were just a little bit too slow. They were a little bit too inconsistent and people suffered as a result. So the qualifying tournament, for example, was already going on while all these discussions were being had behind closed doors. They eventually established this air quality index, but it had turned out that qualifiers had been forced to play earlier that week in air quality that was deemed dangerous and at that point unplayable, right? So if they had come up with this index three or four days earlier, the qualifying tournament would have looked very different. And players wouldn't have had to retire in qualifying. Right. So some players were disadvantaged because Tennis Australia hadn't gotten their act together quickly enough. And you see this when when other crises present themselves, when tournaments are coming back from COVID-19, for example. We come back in August, and there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty about how the bubble's going to work, who's going to be allowed in, how early you have to arrive... What happens if your coach or your physio tests positive? Are you ejected from the tournament? And there was a lot of inconsistency in how that was applied tournament to tournament. The Hugo Delian example, uh, Verdasco being kicked out of the French Open, and then just a day later, the rules being changed that would have allowed him to stay. And then it was too late because the draw had already been made. And so Verdasco was an example of, uh, you know, a former top player, a pretty privileged player being disadvantaged in such a way but most frequently it's qualifiers it's people who have less money and less power in the sport who are being subjected to this inconsistency or not even inconsistency uh, a lack of tennis being able to respond quickly enough to a crisis and covid exposed just how fragile the financial ecosystem of tennis is right because as to as you just explained the tennis authorities, of which there are many, they're varied, they A, don't know how to respond in the moment, which fair, COVID-19, everybody's on the fly with that one. 
they respond too late. It exposes the the inequalities that are built into tennis, that kind of at-will employment, everyone being an independent contractor, no guaranteed income protection. It lays bare just how many moving parts they are at the top of tennis, as far as the governing bodies. There are, what, seven tennis entities? <laughs> the ITF, right? the WTA, the ATP, and then the four Grand Slams. And so when COVID happens and we're wondering, how are these players going to survive? Who is responsible for them? Who's going to create this safety net for them? Because there doesn't seem to be one. Right. And is anyone responsible to support the players or staff or whoever involved in tennis? And so you saw those conversations happening throughout March, April, May. But although COVID-19 is a unique situation, you can see that the like the table was already set for it to be a crisis, right? It could have been any similar crisis, but it just exposed cracks that were already there. To the WTA's credit, they paid out first-round prize money at Indian Wells, a tournament run by Larry Ellison, who would rather donate his millions to Trump events, to Trump <laughs> fundraisers, to getting his president re-elected, rather than being concerned with the sustainability of this tournament that's allegedly the oasis in the desert. Mm. And so, you know, when we got to the point where the tennis bodies were putting together a player relief fund, the WTA had already spent about $3 million, according to Steve Simon, paying Indian Wells prize money. So we'll get there eventually. But uh, that's kind of just setting the stage and uh, showing that tennis can be flexible when it needs to be. And this year demanded so much flexibility out of all of us that transcended that typical corporate ideal of agility. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it demanded a lot more than that. And this is one instance where as much as I think we both kind of err on the side of, well, is a merger between the ATP and the WTA a good thing for the WTA? Like we are much more skeptical now than we were when it happened, when talk of it first happened in March. The tour is working together, and as many of those seven governing bodies working together in a preemptive way can only be a good thing should these natural disasters happen again. Right. So let's go back to January, how innocent we were then. Serena Williams was winning her 73rd career title in Auckland, her first title since returning from maternity leave. That title ensured that she had won a WTA title in four consecutive, well, obviously consecutive, in four decades <laughs> of her career. Imagine if she took like a whole decade off. <laughs> that was also the event that we saw Ruia Morrison emerge at the trophy presentation. Yes. So uh, a legend of New Zealand tennis who, uh, that was really the first time that I had ever heard of Ruia Morrison and it prompted us to do a special segment on our show about her. The episode entitled Hidden Figures, we went back and, and looked at four tennis players in history that you may not have heard about. We did little segments on Ruya Morrison, on Ora Washington, on Richard Russell from Jamaica, and... The Armitrage family. Yes. Also in January, Karolina Pliskova defended her title in Brisbane, defeating Madison Keys. God, I totally forgot that Madison Keys was in that final. Brisbane is always a really stacked draw. But this, I mean, this year was one of the most packed draws you'll ever see at that level on the WTA. 
And what's interesting is that when tennis restarted, every draw was like that. Everywhere you go, because there was such a scarcity of tournaments to be played. Madison only played five tournaments this year, making the third round in Australia and the US Open, first round in Cincinnati, as well as in Roland Garros. Yeah, former semifinalist there. I was saying she'll get a pass for this year because of how uh, how unusual it was. But you know, the hater is going to be out as soon as uh, as soon as we get into 2021. <laughs> Karolina Pliskova is now working with Sasha Bayan. They made that announcement last week on Twitter. That was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see how long this one lasts. Not shading Carolina, but shading Sasha. Because Sasha now, since he split with, I should say, since he was split with by Naomi Osaka, has been around the block. Mm-hmm. Well, and Carolina has had... Uh, Fine, but I don't know her business and I'm not trying to shade mm-hmm. her right now. <laughs> I'm trying to shade Sasha. You can say it's low-hanging fruit, but whatever. One of the more feel-good stories of 2020, and they were few and far between, is Asia Muhammad's success in doubles. Asia Muhammad and Taylor Townsend. Muhammad got her fifth career doubles title at Auckland in January. She and Townsend actually beat Serena Williams and Caroline Wozniacki. Remember that? They played that one tournament together in doubles. (laughs) That was Townsend's first career doubles title. And then the team added Grand Slam success at Roland Garros, making the quarterfinals. They beat Mertens and Sabalenka at that tournament. At the U.S. Open, they reached the semifinals, beating Dabrowski and Risk for one. And they won the Oracle Challenger Series at Indian Wells. I just wanted to point out, because this is, you know, one of the few wonderful stories of this year. Asia Muhammad has been out here forever. You know, she she was a singles prospect. She's been playing on tour since 2006. She had her first main draw singles match in 07 and didn't win a title of any kind until 2015 in doubles. And now she's got five and a Grand Slam semifinal. Fun fact, and I'm sure we've mentioned this on the show before, but she is the sister of former NBA player, former Minnesota Timberwolf, Shabazz Muhammad. I don't think we have mentioned that because I did not know that until I looked her up this week. Sania Mirza, a doubles legend, made a, a comeback in Hobart, winning the title with Nadia Kichinok. Another thing that I did not remember happened in <laughs> 2020. Right. Ash Barty, your number one player. People have been ragging on Ash Barty for being completely absent from the tour since COVID. And even more so because she's retained her year-end ranking without having played down near any tennis. Right. Which is not her fault. No. But folks forget, it seems, that she had a really good start to the year. She won on home soil in Adelaide. Historically, not an easy thing to do for Australian players. And then she made the semifinals of the Australian Open. Her best result at the Australian. She also can be credited with contributing to the rise of Sonia Kennan in 2020. (laughs) She has that on her resume. Uh It's not nothing. No, I mean, she had a really good Australian Open. She beat Elena Rybakina in the third round, Petra Kvitova in the quarterfinal. Petra was the uh, defending runner-up in Australia. And listen, nobody was beating Sophia Kennan this year, so no no great shame there. I don't think that's 
true at all. We saw her lose. <laughs> Did you see in her the, lose at the Australian in Open? In the French Open final. No. And we saw her lose spectacularly to Vika Azarenka in Rome, I believe. Love and love. Yes, but she was uh, like a dog with a bone in Australia this year. Sure. There are many arguments you can make in favor of Ms. Cannon. That was just a bit hyperbolic. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember the fewer... That Ash Barty caused. I mean, she's caused a lot of conversation in 2020. Do you remember the fewer she caused when she brought that niece of hers into the press conference after losing her semifinal at the Australian Open as a crutch, as an embarrassment oh, to women? That it was unprofessional. It was insulting to the journalists in the room. That it was, it made women look weak. That she had to use a baby to hide behind her loss. It was a baby. It, let's let's just be real. It was just a baby. And uh, the whole point that Ash was trying to make there was that, listen, it's it's not that deep. But, you know, it when stuff like this happens, you, you tend to see people's true colors. I mean, some of tennis's leading feminists had some terrible things to say about Ash in that moment. Mm, indeed. Being serious about the Australian Open here, though, what Sonia Kennan did was very impressive. Yes. Uh, look at her last four matches. Kokogov, Jabor, Barty, and Muguruza. If you recall, Muguruza was highly favored for that final. And she had just reunited with Conchita Martinez. And then to start off looking unbeatable in Australia. This this felt like it was destined to happen. But the narrative with Sonia Kennan, she will F up your plans. Mm -hmm. I was shooked, to paraphrase Serena Williams. At that result, I was not prepared to have this young woman be a, a major champion just yet. Caroline, Caroline Wozniacki played her final match at the Australian Open. She pinpointed the Australian Open 2020 as her final tournament. We knew that ahead of time. The site of her lone Grand Slam victory in 2018? Yes. I think so. And she didn't make it very far, but not before taking out Diana Yastrzemska in a very dramatic match. Oh, girl, there were medical timeouts. It was it was a lot. Of course, can you mention that Australian Open without talking about Serena Williams's loss? Which one was this? To Wang Chung. Can I, 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 I was, I I was ready to... Uh, I see what you're doing. No, there. I actually forgot which, which loss it was. That was a pretty harrowing one for the army, wasn't it? Was it not? Who can keep track anymore? They all are. Who did she lose to at the U.S. Open the year before? Oh, that was Bianca, right? Correct, in the final. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then the year before that in Australia was the Pliskova loss from 5-1 up. Like, they're all harrowing. This one in particular saw her wig slip, so it made it a little more difficult. I'm sorry for bringing that mm -hmm. up. Apparently the, the first two months were after winning that title in Auckland. That was not easy for Serena fans. Because the calendar flips to February and she shows up to play Fed Cup. And what happens? It was not great, Bob. She won a match. She lost a match. It turned out that that was her first Fed Cup singles loss in history. Well, actually, Fed Cup loss of any kind. It came against Sevastova, who at that point hadn't won a match in like five years. <laughs> outside of That's the U.S. Not... Open. <laughs> she had lost a lot of matches. Yes, yes. Serena did beat Ostapenko, recording something like six winners in the entire match. But a win is a win. But, it, you know, things did not feel super great for her in in that stretch. Also in February, Naomi Osaka announces that she's got a Netflix documentary coming. 
And I want to know, where is it, boo? <laughs> I realized that COVID threw a wrench in those plans, but I, I haven't really heard any updates on it. The plan was to follow her on tour, culminating with the Tokyo Games, which would right. have happened this past summer. Obviously, it didn't. So I'm assuming that it's still in the works to then culminate next year should the Olympics happen again. If that doesn't happen, which is still a possibility, what do we do then? Right. Uh, Obviously, the pandemic shuttered a lot of plans and it can make things feel anticlimactic, but Naomi has built a a very interesting story this year. And not to make light of the important things that she's done and uh, the painful things that she's been forced to talk about publicly, she, I, I mean, 2020 saw her grow in a way that I don't think we could have anticipated because we didn't know what was going to happen this year. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what the behind the scenes discussions are as far as what could have been an alternate route for this documentary. You could easily have made a documentary following her rise as uh, a voice against anti-black racism, Mm -hmm. especially in tennis. I wonder if some of those discussions would have queried whether or not that looked a little bit opportunistic. To then shift the direction of the documentary since the Olympics isn't happening. Right. But she's got a lot going on for her. She sure does. February, as always, was scattered. Stuff happening all over the globe. You saw the Rafa Roger exhibition in South Africa. I know that's on the ATP side, but... We were in Mexico when that was happening. We were. Uh, We were there for Fed Cup as well. The, The Mexican tournaments were going on. I think Acapulco was going on when we were in Mexico because Renata Sarazua was a huge hometown hero. Uh, Kim Kleisters made her comeback in Dubai, playing Garbinia Muguruza in the first round there. And, you know, you know the story. Kim, her ball striking is impeccable. It rivals almost anyone on tour. Fitness is a problem. She didn't end up recording any wins in 2020. She She didn't play many matches. She played three matches. She lost all of them. Well, technically not true. She had a lot of success in world team tennis. Oh, that's true. She was the yes. breakout star of that event. Mm-hmm. Unbeatable. Right. She didn't have any full-length match WTA-level wins. The closest she came was against Alexandrova at the U.S. Open, where she played an incredibly impressive first set. And as things got to be a bit more competitive, just the lack of match play and fitness started to rear their head. She seems committed to continuing this comeback and what unfortunate i mean covid was not convenient timing for anybody but if you are planning a comeback to high level tennis at the age of 37 this was terrible timing (laughs) if kim wasn't such a nice person she was probably thinking like well fuck my drag (laughs) ruin my comeback heather watson do you remember won a title at the mexican open beating layla fernandez the young canadian in the final Great start to the year for Layla. And then right before COVID hits, at the end of February, we get the announcement in, what was it, Vanity Fair or Vogue? One such publication, Sharapova announces her retirement. There were no drab carpets. (laughs) So the first two months of 2020 saw two huge retirements. And I remember thinking, 
if the Olympics go forward as planned, this is going to be such a huge year for retirements, as has been predicted. You know, the two retirements that we saw were not entirely surprising, considering Sharapova's lack of success recently, Wozniacki's uh, problems with rheumatoid arthritis. It seemed like those careers were winding down. We still saw quite a few retirements, but I don't think anywhere near the number we would have if the Olympics happened. Mm -hmm. Because we're still seeing a lot of players being very vocal about their desire to play the tournament. Hell, we're even seeing, I mean, this could be utter nonsense. It's something I saw on Twitter, unverified. But we're even seeing murmurs of Elena Viznina training to come back for the Olympics really? next year using a protected ranking. I don't. I, I haven't looked into oh that. I haven't researched that. That's totally anecdotal. But my point is, there are a lot of folks, I think, who want that to be their last hurrah. And the fact that it did not happen this year means that folks will probably be hanging on for another year. Can you imagine willing to live through this COVID nightmare in tennis? Sharpova's timing could not have been better for her. <laughs> She was like, I'm good. I see what's coming down the pipeline right now, and no thank you. But uh, for a lot of players, it's like this year was deferred for them. There are mm -hmm. a lot of things they, they probably hope to achieve before they wind down that career. It's like, well, I guess I have to stick around for at least another year. The other retirements of note, Yulia Gerges, Makarova, Jamie Hampton, Vanya King, Parmentier, Mandy Minella, Rybarikova. TBS Hall of Fame inductee, yes. Magdalena Rybarikova, Carla Suarez-Navarro, and Tadishvili. Let's talk about pre-COVID Rybakina, who was on everyone's list to make a huge slam breakthrough this year, was just tearing the place up. And this is someone I, I really feel for, who, unlike some of the other players like Brady and Jabour, who were able to continue that momentum when they came back. It seemed like Rabakina's momentum was broken up. I want to make a, a hashtag TBS confession here. And folks, if you're listening, reach out to us and tell us which players apply in the same setup. There are just a few players for me that I can't, I can't keep them straight in my head. Like I always mixed up Rabakina and Rabarikova, always. And even if I were to, you know, get there, it took me a couple minutes. To get, to, you know, to, okay. to sift through the well, fog in my head. Fair enough, their names are very similar. And then also, Manda Minella and Magdalenette. That, that one was impossible for me. Just could not do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have one? No. I mean, I don't really... For you, it's just telling the Plishkovas apart. Right. You know, remembering who's right-handed and left-handed, that kind of thing. You keep saying this like it's something that is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Of course, as it if makes it's sense. like not completely absurd, <laughs> not with the Plishkovas, but with other players. So, you've, if you've got an example of that in your own head, let us know. But back to your point of the terror that Rebakina was on. It's like Reebok, like the shoe, with Ina at the end. She reached the final at Shenzhen, won Hobart, final of Saint Petersburg a final of Dubai, and gave Simona Halep a great final there. And then we get back. She, you know, she loses in the first round of Cincinnati, second round of the U.S. Open, has another run to the final at Strasbourg, losing to Svitolina, but, you know, another second round at Roland Garros. And clearly, this is someone whose great tennis was a bit interrupted by the long break. Are you saying you're going to be picking her for everything in 2021? Is no, that what you're but it, setting up? I mean, it's not a, not certainly not a bad pick. She 
also, she finished the year as the ace leader. The calendar turns to March, and this is where everything just goes crazy. Mm-hmm. We had done our GoFundMe last, a year ago this time. It ended in January, and we'd made plans, travel plans, to go to Miami. We were going to be press in Miami. We were going to Berlin. We are going to the Berlin ter- tournament that was going to happen for the first time. Possibly doing Cincinnati again. Maybe paying our way to actually be on site for the U.S. Open. We had all these plans for 2020. And then coronavirus hit. And you, you were listening back to some of the episodes from around that time. And even for us, we were totally like fish out of water with assessing how this thing was going to play yeah, out. Yeah, I remember in the beginning of March, we were trying to think about, well, if Miami still goes on, do we still go? Is it safe to go? And then Indian Wells was canceled and Miami was still holding on. And then it became clear, well, I don't I don't know. I don't think we can go to Miami. That doesn't seem safe. And in, in Canada, at least, there was such a short window between when we realized how serious it was becoming to the point where workplaces starting sending you home, restaurants locked down, everything went into a, a really serious lockdown. It seemed like a matter of a few days. And I remember at the time feeling like, what is taking my company so long to make a decision on this? And then looking back at the calendar, it was, God, it was like a matter of three days. We kept hearing, oh, there are murmurs in Indian Wells. There are murmurs that maybe the tournament won't go on. The players were all there. And then there were, what, a couple of cases diagnosed in that county or the city where in Palm mm. Springs? Is where yeah. is it? Yeah, it's near Palm, Palm Springs. Palm Springs. And then it was just like that overnight. It was like, this is this is done. And then everybody starts to scramble. And the French Open were the ones to make the first big move. Right. So as tournaments start falling off the calendar, some of the more opportunistic tournaments and federations try to make their move. As you said, the French Open tried to just grab a spot in the calendar and unilaterally say, we're going to have it then. When all this is is blown over, we're going to have it in September. Labor Cup be damned. And as it turned out, they were not far off from being correct. They were, uh, I guess they were smart to be so brazenly uh, opportunistic. (laughs) Still selfish. Still... Oh, certainly, yeah. Still probably should not have happened, given that the cases, when it did happen, were much larger in volume than when the tournament originally Mm -hmm. was to be held. Yeah. And then France went into a more serious lockdown really shortly after the tournament was done. On April 1st, Wimbledon cancelled its 2020 tournament. We ended up getting three slams in for the year. The Australian Open had already happened. The US Open pushed back its start a couple weeks. They got that out. And then the French Open happened a couple weeks after that. But Wimbledon 2020, you'll look on Wikipedia and you'll see on a player's career performance Grand Slam timeline, it'll say NH, not held. Mm. This was the first time that Wimbledon had not been held since World War II. Indian Wells initially was the biggest tournament cancellation in tennis since that period, since the 40s. The image of Wimbledon sort of sitting atop its throne, watching the other tournaments fight each other, is very on brand for them, right? Like, they did all the, the proper planning... They are way above 
trying to scramble for their place on the calendar. And the, the reason why they were able to do that is because they had the luck, some would say the foresight, to have a pandemic insurance policy in place. Mm-hmm. The money? <laughs> we'll talk a lot more about how the players reacted to COVID-19 and adjusted their lifestyles on the men's tour because <laughs> because there was a great disparity between the way the women reacted to it and the way the men reacted yeah. to it. Yeah, women's tennis players, to their credit, were largely quiet during those first few months of COVID lockdown. You didn't hear too much about them. We saw Venus Williams giving us exercise routines on Instagram, right? having uh, people dropping in to co-star with her. She gave dramatic performances when Grigor Dimitrov made a guest appearance and she got him to show her his abs. And she dramatically fainted. She swooned. <laughs> Naomi Osaka was doing uh, an interview series on her Instagram. Uh, you know, some of the big stars were just doing social media updates. And that's pretty much it. They were staying out of trouble for the most part. Diana Yastremska was singing. Mm-hmm. Garbina Muguruza was dancing. She opened quite a few eyes to her rhythmic dance moves. Some mm-hmm. folks were shocked, as you say, that Serena Williams said, by <laughs> the way she was able to gasolina up the place. Right. Um, Victoria Azarenka joined TikTok, did a lot of, uh, I mean, also dancing videos, but to a lower degree of success. And a lower degree of difficulty. I think those two worked hand in right. hand as well. Christy Ahn became a TikTok star. But you're seeing the trend here. Most of the women were just doing social media cutesy stuff from their homes or from their parents' homes while the guys were complaining about having to pay for lower-ranked players' ways. They were uh, partying on the French Riviera. I mean, saying, I will not contribute to that fund. They're lazy. I will not. Hold on. Uh, Moritz is calling. What's that? Oh, you need some? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. What were you saying? Excuse, he's like, excuse me, poor people are talking. <laughs> but uh, Okay, so COVID is happening bad enough. But then tennis and its stars are having to deal with this other huge cultural moment that's happening in the United States with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Some, some are choosing not to deal with it which is their prerogative. But a lot of the black American players were given an undue burden because something was happening that affected their community that has been happening for many, many decades and centuries, as it were, but had become so inflamed in May and June. Black Lives Matter, protests against anti-black racism, against police violence, several high-profile murders of innocent black people, And, of course, activists can point out that this has been happening for a long time, but it certainly reached a fever pitch combined with a pandemic that was killing black and brown people at a disproportionate rate, people out of work, in financial distress. It was a lot going on at the same time. And specific to tennis, what I think we saw was quite a few folks beginning to understand how their privilege, their whiteness played a role in all of this. The blinders that they had on, how they refused to see the connectivity of it all. How, okay, you may not think that this affects your life at all, 
but you play tennis with black players for whom it's a daily experience. Do you remember Taylor Townsend giving that interview where she told of how she showed up on site and it happens many times where not only do they does she not get recognized, but she gets mistaken for other black players and then also being routinely checked by security because she couldn't be a tennis player. Mm. And so what we got was a lot of players telling stories that they had previously been compelled, whether internally or externally, compelled to hide. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, what we saw back then was quite a few white people in tennis have a somewhat of a come-to-Jesus moment Mm -hmm. to see how this actually is interconnected, how, how they... How their silence has contributed to this. Mm-hmm. How they have benefited. It was a, a real illustration of what white privilege meant in a way that maybe they had never understood before. And you saw, you actually did see a lot of the older generation kind of open their eyes and humble themselves and try to do some of that work, which I thought was very encouraging. And of course, you saw some people determinedly refuse to do that work. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw Lisa Raymond and... Her sidekick. I thought you were going to say Lisa Rinna. Like, what did she do? (laughs) You saw Lisa Raymond and her sidekick repeatedly dip their foot Mm. in the Blue Lives Matter movement. Yes, bolstered by John Isner. Uh, Her sidekick being Ali Kick, who at one point created a fake Twitter account to tweet at Chanda Rubin. And Chanda knew exactly to whom she was speaking and exposed her. And then Ali had to apologize. And it was... One of the most bizarre interactions you'll ever see. She said it was a friend who did it, that it wasn't her who did it. It was... But did it, like, with her blessing? Don't listen to the lies. Lies of Manelli lies. Anyway, hats off to Chanda Rubin for doing the Lord's work on social media (laughs) during this time. Because she had to do it on Tennis Channel, on her own social media, in the commentary booth. The woman does not sleep. Like, she's one of the few voices in the spaces in which she exists that is kind of the expert, right? Like, there's a lot of pressure on people like her because she's got to speak truth to white people who just now discovered that this is a thing. Can you imagine the fatigue that she must have felt during that time? Having to go on air in this uncertain time, having to worry about her own black child in this environment... And then having to deal with these vermin on social media. (laughs) Like swatting away cockroaches Mm. on social media who refuse to get the point that this is about actual black people being murdered on a daily basis by institutions that are supposed to protect them. Right. So I, I don't know where we are at this point. And now that that turd in the White House is no longer president... I hope that people don't think that that's the fix, you know, because Black Lives Matter was born during the Obama presidency. Like these problems don't go away when Trump goes away. But I think that in the U.S., we've uh, come a long way culturally in the things that are allowed to be spoken and the things that are actually understood by a larger number of people. Now, whether that will result in real wholesale change is yet to be seen. But we did see a profound cultural shift this year. Hmm. And tennis was part of it. Not from Bethany Maddox Sands and Tennis United. No. So that happened. That's really all I have to say about that. I will say that hopefully 
And thanks to the work of Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff, Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys, building on the work that Venus and Serena have done, who built on the work that the likes of Zena Garrison and Leslie, Leslie Allen. Allen, Althea Gibson, the blood, sweat, and tears that they shed throughout their lives and careers, that the WTA is positioned now, hopefully, to deal with this better going forward, that they can be agents of real change in women's tennis. Now, while all this was going on, we were still in the midst of a pretty serious crisis in tennis. Tournaments were falling off the calendar left and right. It was at that point still unclear when tennis would officially return and if the return would be safe and successful. And it turns out that it, it did return successfully. For a while, folks would ask us all the time, whenever we'd have a mailbag segment, do you think tennis is going to happen this year? And we thought no. We thought it was probably like 90% no, it wasn't going to happen. I I guess I'm a pessimist because I did say probably not many times. And, And there would have been a good argument for it not to have happened. In May, I think it was in May, April or May, the tours came together with the four Grand Slams, the ITF, and devised the player relief program for players ranked between 100 and 500. They raised millions of dollars, and then each tour would have the opportunity to figure out how that was to be disseminated. So the WTA decided to pay $10,400 to eligible players, and they paid it in two installments. There was, as you remember, a lot of discussion about that on both the WTA Player Council and the ATP Player Council. Some of the male players were a lot more vocal about where they believed their money, quote-unquote, their money should go. The, The whole top players paying into the fund was struck down. That was turned into a completely voluntary thing. But there was a proposal early on where top players would have to pay in some of their own money. This coming off the back of the talks of merger that happened in March. That kind of took the tennis world by surprise when Roger Federer tweeted out, I don't even know what it was at this point specifically, but it was like, hey, now is the time to work together more than ever. What do you think about a merger? (laughs) I think yes. And then Rafa quote tweets it and says, Great idea, Roger. Something it to that effect. It was clearly like a coordinated tweet storm. I think it was in April, actually. But, uh, you know, that those few months were a blur. And early on, none of us had any idea what to make of it. It didn't even seem that tennis journalists were in the know. You know, usually you expect, okay, one of the one of the top tennis reporters will come out with a story in a week and make sense of this stuff we were all conjecturing about the week before. But it didn't really become clearer until I would say toward the end of the year, it became a little bit clearer with the WTA's new marketing campaign mm-hmm. as one example. But the the player relief fund was kind of one of the first acts where they, they acted in a, kind of a harmonious way, the two associations. It seems that that announcement by Federer was, or that statement by Federer was a lot of bluster, whereas for something like this to happen will take a lot of groundwork. And we've seen a little bit of that so far. Tennis returns in August. Simona Halep, right off the bat, continues her excellent form after winning Dubai, wins her first tournament back in Prague. In Lexington, Kentucky, they throw together this tournament at a country club there, attracts people like Venus and Serena Williams, Sloane Stevens, Jennifer Brady, all these big stars. A tournament that we had the the, uh, good fortune to cover virtually. Yes. 
That was a new experience. That for was us. right. That was the first experience with Zoom press conferences, which were God. I, I, I mean, they, they ran were seamlessly. They were handled as well or better than regular press conferences. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the players probably like not having to uh, talk to us in real life. You know, Jennifer Brady continued her excellent 2020 by winning Kentucky. At that same tournament, we saw Venus debut a new game, an abbreviated serve, a different technique on her forehand. She started by blitzing Victoria Azarenko in the first round of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was stunning tennis. One of the big stories of the summer and fall obviously became Victoria Azarenka's incredible career resurgence, which there was no evidence of that in Kentucky. No, (laughs) not many could have predicted that based on the match against Venus, especially because Venus didn't go forward and have any success for the rest of the season. When Venus is playing well, it's a good matchup for her Mm -hmm. against Vika. But Azarenka, I mean, you know what she did in Cincinnati. She beat three seeds, including Naomi Osaka. Enough in a walkover in the final. Right. That uh, the end stages of that tournament were, were... I mean, there was new news coming out every few minutes. The tournament was happening the same week that Jacob Blake was murdered in Kenosha, Wisconsin by police. You saw protests across the WNBA, NBA, Major League Baseball, and then tennis. Naomi Osaka refused to take the court for, I believe, what was her semifinal match in Cincinnati. And eventually the tournament decided to pause play on that day. Negotiations to figure out how we're going to move forward. We don't, to this day, don't know the full 100 of how that played out. Initially, we were told that Naomi wouldn't, that, that she was done, she withdrew, right? And then the next day, we hear that, well, the entire tournament is taking a break today to honor these protests, and Naomi will be back the following day to actually play her semifinal. And people are like, well, she already withdrew. That's not allowed. She can't do that. And technically she didn't. She just said she would not go on court that day. She didn't say she had withdrawn from the tournament. Even if she did, you still have to formally withdraw from the tournament. Mm -hmm. So the point at which negotiations start happening with her after she said it on social media is not something that she has to be held to by the tournament. She hasn't officially withdrawn from the tournament. Mm. The uh, the behind the scenes of what happened over those few days is a story that I hope will someday be told because there, you know, we've heard rumors, but I want to know what really happened. I hope that's on caught the on camera for that Netflix documentary. Yeah, yeah. Because shortly after, Novak Djokovic, Vasek Pospisil, and a bunch of ATP players announced the formation of the Professional Tennis Players Association, the PTPA. I only mention it because apparently it includes women. Mm -hmm. I've heard. But it also was birthed in part because of Naomi's withdrawal. Or was uh, sped up a little bit because of the chaos that was going on. And the tournament's unilateral decision to suspend play and how that affected the men without their consent Mm -hmm. or consultation. Imagine, think about that for a second. So Cincinnati happened in New York on the U.S. Open grounds. We get a week off, the top players get a week off, and we're right into the U.S. Open. It's kind of the same bubble, but not really, because there were, you know, new players were flying in all the time. I think the latest you could fly in and join the bubble was four days before the tournament. 
So some players were scrambling to reach it early on. Benoit Paire tested positive for COVID-19 at the U.S. Open, and he had been around something like 11 or 12 other players. The French card game. Yes. Playing cards in the lobby of the hotel, Benoit Paire tested positive shortly after that fateful card game. Kiki Mladenovic is one of the players who had to be removed from the tournament, and her partner, Tamea Babos, had to pull out of doubles as well. And this set off uh, just a legendary shit fit by Mladenovic. There were a lot of accusations, a lot of speculation about false positives. That's a buzzword in tennis this year, false positives. And, I mean, I get it. I get being upset. Um, I don't agree with how she handled it. I felt like it was really insensitive people who are actually suffering with COVID-19. But she and Babos did have a chance, feasibly, to sweep the slams in 2020. And they had won the previous year's WTA finals. I mean, that's a stretch. Oh, yeah. Only one slam had been played to that point. That's true. But they were, you know, they were clearly the top doubles team in the world. They did go on to win Roland Garros after they were turfed from the U.S. Open. At the U.S. Open, which it seems, became the mom open because (laughs) that was a narrative from day one with Ezarenka back in form, with Serena threatening again to win 24. And then we had a big run, a big comeback run by Svetlana Pironkova making the quarterfinals. So you had these three... Oh, and we also had Kim Kleisters playing. Mm -hmm. So that's what people ran with for that tournament. There were some... I mean, the later stages of that tournament was exciting. You had some very surprising runs by Pironkova, who beat Muguruza in the second round, Shelby Rogers, who reached the quarterfinals, uh, Putintseva in the quarterfinals, and then Brady making the semis and giving us what many feel is the best match of the year. Those women's semis delivered in a way that, uh, I mean, rivals any of the, the women's semis of the past five, ten years. That semifinal match that you referenced there is Naomi Osaka beating Jennifer Brady. Mm -hmm. It was a straight sets win, but it was still impeccable tennis. And the other semi was Serena and Vika, which was a really exciting match. And Serena eventually was slowed down by this Achilles injury. In the final, Naomi Osaka, it, it felt like her moment, given everything that she had done the entire quarantine that she had done in Cincinnati the burden that she had assumed for herself as being the voice of her generation, as the one to make a change in tennis, to put her hand up, it felt fitting that she would win this tournament. Mm. Beating Victoria Azarenka in three sets, I say that now that it felt fitting, but it also felt fitting if Vika would have won it, based on the run that she had been on. Oh, yeah. It was fitting that the two of them would be in that final, given that they would have both been in the Cincinnati final, what, three weeks prior? That that final that was not held because Naomi had to issue a walkover because of injury. And in that first set, Victoria Azarenka looked unbeatable. Mm-hmm. It was flawless tennis. She looked like a woman on a mission. The sport being one of momentum swings and a sport where it's so difficult to stem the tide of an opponent who is in the midst of one of those purple patches, as I like to call them. Naomi Osaka found a way in that match. We went from a hectic January-February to nothing going on in tennis on the court from March through the end of July. What's that? Mm -hmm. A good five months of no tennis. 
And then we pick back up in August, and it's tennis going at a breakneck speed through August, September, and into the start of October. Right. And a a lot of players chose to play either the U.S. Open or Roland Garros. There were a lot of withdrawals on both sides, which were totally understandable. There was such a short gap in between the two surfaces. Because remember, too, we didn't know what the protocols would be for being able Mm -hmm. to travel from Europe to the United States, what the quarantine requirements would be should players decide to do both. There was a lot of hand-wringing by some of the top players who, again, didn't necessarily paint themselves in the best light (laughs) for wanting preferential treatment. Mm -hmm. Right, and... Now now that the Australian Open negotiations are pretty much wrapped up, the discussions were described as chaotic behind the scenes, but they have the luxury of time, right? They have a tournament that would have started minimum a month and a half to two months away. These were tournaments that were scheduled to be held in two weeks, in three weeks, and they have to figure out between European governments and tennis federations, what are the rules about quarantining? Like If I leave Europe as a European player and go to the U.S. Open, how long will I have to quarantine once I come back? Right. Or like, will Given I that be there's such to? a short turnaround between the U.S. Open and the French Open. These were actually valid concerns mm-hmm. and things that people needed to know. It just so happened that with everybody scrambling, A, it was difficult to get an answer justifiably. But in the midst of all that, this is one of those moments where strife and turmoil kind of reveals character rather than builds it right (laughs) yes Simona Halep is one of the players who chose not to come to the U.S. Open and moving on to Clay she wins the very first tournament Rome beating Pliskova in the final looks unassailable on the surface has had a ton of success this year because she also won the the comeback tournament where was it Prague yes So she's heading into the French Open, having won the clay tournament in Prague upon resumption, hanging out, practicing for a few more weeks, and then showing up to this big tournament in Rome, a delayed Rome tournament, beating Pliskova in the final. And so she heads into the French Open with as much momentum as one could have in this year. Mm -hmm. And little did we know she was going to run into that buzzsaw who was Iga Sviantek and lose fairly meekly against her, as I mean, as Sviantek did to everyone. Svitolina also won a warm-up tournament in Strasbourg. So these two were in uh, fine fettle, is that what you say? Going into Rolling Girls? You could say that. But Simona was one of the clearest favorites we've had leading into a Grand Slam in several years on the women's side. The French Open gave us more surprises. We had two qualifiers in the quarterfinals between uh, Martina Trevisan and Podoroska. Podoroska actually made the semifinals as well. Uh, I was actually just, as we were talking about Kenan winning Australia, she beat Trevisan in the first round there. Someone we had never heard of at the time, but then made this incredible run in the French later in the year. Other unseeded players at that French Open to make the quarterfinals, Danielle Collins, Laura Zigamund, and the eventual champion Iga Sviantek. We've talked a lot about Sviantek's run, and it was hard to describe how dominant it was. But her year leading up to it was pretty ho-hum, right? Coming off that incredible tournament, you want to put her in the conversation of player of the year, but the rest of her season doesn't really make that argument for you. It wasn't terrible, but it just wasn't remarkable. The fourth round of Australian Open is a great result. 
third round of the U.S. She lost in the first round of Rome to Roos, which was surprising, and the first round of Cincinnati. But talk about, like, an incredible performance to bring you into the next year. Everybody's talking about her. Sure. Momentum in this sport right now is as fickle as it's ever been. <laughs> so yeah. I would hesitate to put too great an expectation on Sviantec for next year. We've seen it also time and again with WTA stars, young up-and-coming WTA stars. It takes them a while Mm -hmm. to really string things together. The closest that we've had in the last five years is Naomi Osaka. And even then it felt like, okay, you got the first two back-to-back and then what's happening Mm. here? Remember Sarah Arani's tantrum at the French Open? The Bapanculo? Yes. Did I, I say that okay? Yes, I just saw a great TikTok where a child asked her grandmother to explain what that meant in the literal translation, which was hilarious. It just means go fuck yourself, right? No, I'm not going to translate it. How bad is it? <laughs> no, I'm not going to translate it. Can I'll you just, give us a I'll hint? just tell you that culo means ass. Go, go do something to yourself in the... Right. Okay. <laughs> That, that I mean, requires that, some literal requires some agility. <laughs> NT way, so she freaked out about Kiki Burton's injury timeouts. The fact that Kiki ended up winning, leaving the court in a wheelchair, and then she spotted Kiki in the player restaurant after mm-hmm. that really pissed her off. Apparently, but, when you're injured, you need to go on a fast. <laughs> right. You need to fast for two days and out of sight of. Sarah Iran. But Sarah left the court screaming, and that that aged really well, I would say, because Burton's actually had to get surgery for an Achilles injury. So um, I expect the apology is forthcoming. I, I would too. I mean, we're talking about one of the classiest players mm-hmm. on the WTA. Yes. I would expect nothing less. I think we should put that in our letter to Santa, <laughs> which is what Sarah <laughs> told us last year. That's quite the callback there that <laughs> yes. you did. You know, coming full circle. After the French Open... I don't think anybody outside of the actual tennis players had much of an appetite for more tennis. Honestly, no. We certainly didn't. (laughs) I know tennis is back. We still didn't think it should have been back. (laughs) We feel that we're lucky to have been back and pulled these events off without incident. Great. But folks are still out here dealing with COVID in their regular lives, going in and out of lockdowns, worrying about their jobs, like the, the monotony of nothingness mm. yeah and everythingness at the same time and then we're supposed to be excited about about add-on add-on tournaments no disrespect to that gentleman i wouldn't be able to pick him out on the street if i saw him but the bandwidth just was not there mm-hmm. so pay these women and let them train for next year but we we got two more tournaments in ostrava and Linz, both of which Sabalika won there's not much to report from october and november here these are the tournaments that were not held. Are you ready? Hiroshima, Madrid, Seoul, Beijing, Hong Kong, Tianjin, Nanchang, Luxembourg, Wuhan, Zhengzhou, Guangzhou, Moscow, Tokyo, the WTA Finals, and Zhuhai. A lot of those were from the Asian swing that was canceled earlier in the year. Some of them were European. But that is a lot of money left on the table for the players, for the tournaments, for the WTA, a lot of ranking points left on the table, which, you know, they were cushioned in ranking points this year because it was over the past 20 months. Mm-hmm. Steve Simon was asked about 
what was the thinking behind not having a WTA finals this year? Because we've seen a few critiques of the WTA recently, and I find them completely absurd. <laughs> it's just sort of weird this year. That, well, why is the WTA not having tournaments when the ATP has tournaments still going on? Why mm. has the WTA shut it down for the year? Steve Simon said that the WTA finals was not going to happen. It was never really a serious consideration to move the tournament somewhere else, which was what was reported at, at one point upon resumption because of existing contracts. And he also felt that doing that would diminish the the heft of the event, that there weren't enough tournaments on the year to make that event even close to the level that it, it, it once was mm-hmm. or that it tends to be. Right. And that it didn't recognize a full season of play. It didn't, it wouldn't have shown a light on truly who the best players were. And at the ATP finals, we did see some players qualify who probably wouldn't have in a normal year if those were their results and vice versa. As for why there were no tournaments in Asia, that's, that's a governmental thing. Like the right. Chinese government was like, listen, that, that's not, we're not, do, we're not doing that. Shout out to Arena Sabalenko. This might be a regurgitation because this happened very recently. We covered it recently. But winning back-to-back to end the year, taking three titles from the season is quite the achievement. This past week, the WTA unveiled one of its biggest marketing pushes of the decade. Its first rebrand in 10 years, new logo, new names for the tournament categories, which is the big thing that everyone was talking about, and a new marketing campaign. I have to say, I do not like this logo one bit. It's beyond belief that a company could have been paid to create this. For me, graphically speaking and design-wise, for me, it is unimpressive in every way. And on top of that, why in this moment am I looking at an image that conjures Karolina Pliskova? What that's who you think it looks like? Absolutely. The silhouette of the, the player. The silhouette serving? of the player. I mean, they haven't, if not, they haven't said that it was modeled after anyone. They haven't. But if the idea is to go run of the mill, they've achieved it. <laughs> no disrespect to Pliskova. Like you have all these iconic serves in the history of the WTA. That, you, that are so easily recognizable. Fine, I get it. Serena Williams might not be willing to play ball, is not the most accessible person to the WTA right now. You may also be or concerned. Or maybe doesn't represent their future. Yeah, or maybe you want to go in the direction of, of a player that, that's going to take the WTA into the future. One easily comes to mind. The hair makes her very recognizable in that silhouette. <laughs> yes. The generic nature of this silhouette was a miss. For me, some and you know, I'm sitting there thinking about this, and then I'm like, well, I don't want to be one of those people who is, well, I hate that, I hate that, I hate that, and not offer a solution. That's really a tacky mm-hmm. thing to do. I'm not a graphic artist. I don't know how difficult this would have been to do, but to to get an image with multiple stages of the serve that represent different women throughout history on the WTA tour, kind of passing the ball from past to present. I don't know. I don't know how hard that would have been to do if that's something that can be done. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. I Now, what about, forget the the silhouette, just the letters, WTA. It's fine. It's. I mean, it's not super exciting. No, but it's fine. The image and the likeness in professional sports as a logo is 
it's an important thing. It's an iconic yeah. thing. Think about NBA. In you know what that looks like. You know, right? Yes. The other stuff I do like the attempt to connect the past to the present with the WTA videos that were released on mass. Mm-hmm. Enjoy those. I also feel that maybe the whole I play for this, I play for that, I play for the passion, I play for the fans, I play for the this. It doesn't really hit the way it should. It just doesn't hit the same when multiple players are saying the same answer. Mm. Like they were slotted in? Yeah. There's a lot of negativity to end the year. It was. No, from you. I know. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) They also, so they also recategorized the tournaments, which I'm so happy about because ever since they started the premiere, premiere mandatory, premiere five thing, I'm so confused. I can't remember which is which, which is more prestigious, the five or the mandatories. So listen, they have adopted something much closer to the ATP, which is, uh, I alluded to earlier in the episode about a new development that brings the merger uh, a little bit closer, at least uh, image-wise. They've gotten rid of the premier mandatory, premier, all that language, and turned the four premier mandatory events and the premier fives into 1,000s. So the former mandatories were Indian Wells, Miami, Madrid, Beijing. And the premier fives were Doha, Rome, Canada, Cincinnati, and Wuhan. Those are all going to be the nine 1,000s to mirror the ATP, which has nine Masters 1,000s. The premiers will be 500s, and the internationals will be 250s. Now, there is a slight wrinkle here in that the points don't always line up. Unfortunately. Mm. So a 1,000 event is worth either 1,000 or 900 points. A 500 is worth 470 points. The 250s are worth 280. And the 125s are worth 150. Which is the same distribution that's been in place. Yes. But now you've attached a numerical value, like 500, for example, Mm. but it's not actually worth 500 points. But it's called Mm. a 500 tournament. The intent here is to create continuity between both tours and make it more digestible for fans. Yes. What happens when you get to Cincinnati? Well, here's the thing, right? The the argument from the anti-equal pay people have always been, well, Cincinnati on the men's side is a Masters 1000, so that's why they don't have to pay equal prize money. And on the WTA side, it wasn't 1000. Now you have a tournament that in name is called a 1000 on both sides. But the points are not equal. And so this, to me, would have been a, I mean, a good way to sort of stop that that argument against equal pay and said, say, well, all of these tournaments are now 1,000s on both tours. They are assigning equal points. You got to pay us the same. And so maybe we're just not quite there yet. Maybe the money is not there. It's a start. It is. That's the year in... In tennis on the WTA Tour, we'll look back a little bit on our output as far as the WTA is concerned. We want to shout out to some of the WTA legends of the past who we featured in some way or another on the show this year, be it an appearance like we had with Zena Garrison or an appearance in name only in a research episode that we did. Some of the legends that we talked about on the show this year Monica Sellis. We started season six with our Monica Sellis research episode. Easily one of my favorite things that we did on the show this year. Zena Garrison. We did a research episode on her and then she reached out and said, hey, I actually really like that. And then we were able (laughs) to get her on the show and 
That was an incredible experience for us, something we hadn't done before. Billie Jean King, Chrissy Everett, Martina Navratilova, Pam Shriver, all featuring heavily in our What's the Point of the WT If We Don't Stick Together episode. And then we learned a bit about Rhea Morrison, Ora Washington, and some more about Althea Gibson this year. Yeah, so going forward, I the plan is hopefully to open 2021 with another long-form sort of episode like that, which highlights a particular part of WTA history. Haven't decided on what that will be yet. One of them that I had targeted was Alice Marble, and I even bought the book. Mm. And then come to find out from doing preliminary research, because I'd only heard like whispers of what her career was like, you know, surface reading type stuff. And like, well, that's interesting. Oh, there's a book. Let me buy it. I'll read it. I go to start this process and find out that a lot of what she says has been called into question. What? As lies. <laughs> embellishments. Oh, no. <laughs> a piece that I read uh, that was featured in Racket Mag, I believe by Joel Drucker, just called into question a whole lot of things. The fact that she claimed to be a spy on behalf of the CIA. That's not true. There's... Um, it's a convenient lie, right? Because, like, where would you get confirmation well, of that? Right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so I yes. mean, that someday may, be, may become an episode in itself yeah. if more comes out about it. But I'd like to say learning is forever. And we, we've learned so many fascinating things about tennis history this year because we were afforded time to do it. We, At, had, we had to kind of readjust our goals for the show this year. <laughs> yes. In order to keep it going through a pandemic where there was no tennis, that we're able to do at the end of the year, 35 episodes, is something I'm very proud of. Because it was not easy, I can tell you. Mm. At the end of each season, we always like to look at our predictions at the beginning of the season and kind of keep each other honest. We don't typically make a ton of predictions because it's a fool's errand, but we did. you did force me to kind of throw out a few names of players who we thought or hoped would break out in a big way. This is not on me. <laughs> this is actually something we, one of the few things we do every year. We, we do. have this segment I mean, at the start of everybody the year. does it. Every podcast, every commentator yeah. does this, right? It's not like making predictions, looking at a slam draw as to who's going to win. Mm-hmm. That we try and stay away from now, but this stuff we do every year. But this year, we we did it a little differently, and we chose a player within the top 50 to break out, a player between 51 and 100, and then a over 100 player. Mm-hmm. I started this agenda. We, we do it on Google Docs. So I started the agenda, and then you had done some work on it over the span of a couple of days, and I hadn't checked in to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I see that you had put this part about keeping us honest here with the report card, and you had... You expressed what seemed to me excitement that you had gotten so many right. You had it listed there, and then you put in parentheses, James in caps, James in caps, James in caps. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm on the other side of, well, on the other side of 30 now, but my memory's not that bad. Mm. Like, I'm pretty sure those were my picks. (laughs) And so what had happened was I copied and pasted it from our agenda for that episode. And what it said was it listed your picks and then it said my name, as in fill in yours, mm. like James, fill in your picks. So at that so, point, I had worked on the agenda and I, you, I was waiting on you to put yeah, in your picks. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I had to go back and listen to that episode 
because I was thinking like, oh my, I am so smart. These picks are amazing. <laughs> and you know what? My picks were not as amazing. <laughs> I mean, this was a lot of luck on my part. I, they're, okay. WTA well, top 50 player to bust out. I remember saying I'm going to go with an American. It's going to be one of two Americans, and it's going to be Alison Risk to build on her 2019 and get into well into the top 10, or it's going to well, be Jennifer. Well into the top 10? Is yeah. that what you said? Yeah. Oh, my. Or Jennifer Brady. That was, see, that was a good one. I said Alexandrova. Which is not a bad pick. But, but I had the benefit of her just having won Shenzhen in mm. like that first week. You really are keeping yourself honest, aren't you? <laughs> So she did not have an amazing year, but she did reach the semifinals at St. Petersburg and Linz. She beat Kim Kleisters at the U.S. Open in the first round. But no, she did not have a great year. So I, I don't think it was a great pick. WTA top 51 to 100. I picked Iga Svantec. Mm-hmm. Just to cut you down a little, I'm sure a lot of people picked her at the sure, beginning of the year. Sure, yeah. I picked Kazatkina which she finally had like a late surge on clay. And I picked Boskova, which she made the final in Monterey, but otherwise not a great pick either. Players outside the top 100, I picked Katie McNally. Not that great of a pick. (laughs) In doubles, yes. You didn't, I see you listed here. I didn't make a prediction because Jonathan went on a tangent, darling. It was a tangent because... As I listened back to that episode, I realized you just went on talking and we talked about another topic and we never circled back to what my pick would be. So I got out of it. I'm, I'm sure at the time I didn't even want to do one. So I didn't get, end up giving one. I read that on the agenda and I went back and listened to it and I think that you're misrepresenting what happened. Uh, it wasn't. It was like a sidebar. You just Isn't, did, that, isn't you that, just that what a tangent did, is? No, a tangent is more long-winded more winding it's a long and winding road Mm, that gets you all kind of foggy and twisted in the head to the point where you don't remember where you were you lose your bearings anyway you just didn't want to do it you didn't press me on it so that there is the crux of that matter Mm. that brings us to the end of our 2020 wta season for the body serve my name is jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john and i'm james at elliot jmr Two L's, two T's. We are at The Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and your favorite podcast apps. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much.